fly off to glory. Eh? What a wonderful time in the presence of God. I'm so thankful. Aren't you thankful? We can walk the street knowing God made this beautiful creation. So grateful for his life poured out into our lives. The love overshadowing us all the time. How privileged we are. So grateful too for songwriters and musicians that give us songs like this. Words that capture what we want to say out of the depths of their experience. Not trying to just find a clever phrase, but saying what's happened to them. I know that's true of these songs, and uh, it's just wonderful, wonderful. I'd happily carry on worshipping, I'm sure you would. I'm going to interrupt by uh, opening the Bible with you at Ephesians and chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to carry on from, I think we read from the start, Okay, we'll read from the beginning of the chapter again. Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Father, we thank you so much for the high privilege of gathering in the name of Jesus. Lord, we can't put a value, a measure on what it means for us to wake daily knowing you are my Father. To know that I have been clothed with righteousness, not my own. To gather with the saints, the holy ones, in holy assembly before a God has chosen individually each one here, planned for us, chosen us, made us alive when we were dead. God, we thank you for the miracles, the many answers to prayer that, Lord, could be counted from this company alone. We thank you, Lord, you count not only the hairs on our head, but, Lord Jesus, you know us. You answer our prayer again and again, multiplied stories, your favor and kindness. Now, Father, we thank you, too, for the inspired, God-breathed scriptures that are for our good. And Father, we ask you that you would really help us as we heard from John on that first day to submit ourselves to truth. 
Lord, to line up with the doctrine of the Scripture. We pray we may come as fresh to the Scripture as we know how, that we might receive by the Spirit, Lord, together. We might be shaped by truth, poured into its shape, formed by the doctrine. Lord, help us to be truly obedient. We pray, lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. Let us not get led into error as we open the Bible. Safeguard us, we pray, as we serve one another with the Bible open. And Father, I ask in Jesus' name this morning that far-off nations will be affected by what we do here now. I ask you, God, that as we more and more try to uh, line up with your word, you will facilitate in us and through us gospel preaching to the ends of the earth, formation of churches in nation after nation. So, Lord, we come not for idle speculation, not simply to fill our notepads. We come, O oh God, to be inspired, motivated, sent to the ends of the earth. Let your word do us good, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, obviously we're picking up uh, where we left off yesterday. And uh, yesterday we looked particularly at the unity of the church and we finished with that emphasis of uh, what uh, Leon Morris talked about, the staccato, one body, one this, one that. The whole emphasis of our being one people, the church of God being one people down through the ages, the mystical body of Christ. We are one. We want to love the body of Christ. We want to live in the light of that body. The scripture then, the passage goes on now to speak about what the Lord Jesus has accomplished. And Paul wants us to capture a sight of his, as it were, ascending into the heavens and giving gifts. The church, though it is united, is not colourless and identical. We are not all clones, you're pleased to know. We're not all just identical copies of one another. We need to be very careful about that in any discipling involvement. We're not just cloning one another. There are diverse gifts and diverse personalities which God loves. He wants to sanctify, certainly, but he loves the diversity that brings him glory and pleasure and joy. So the passage in verse 6 had had several uh, references to all. He said in verse 6 that all of us and he is over all and through all and in all, but the word changes from all to each now. Now he's beginning to speak to the individual, to each of us. There are grace gifts. And uh, he first of all speaks of the giver being the ascended Christ. To each of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he quotes from Psalm 68 and verse 18, a passage of scripture which speaks about the coming of God. It's a magnificent psalm. It talks about God coming uh, to Sinai. It talks about God coming up to Zion. It's the sense of the arrival of the majestic king, the Lord of Israel, Israel's God coming with power. And uh, Paul takes that passage and interprets it uh, as Christ's ascension into glory. The coming of God to his people is now uh, dealt with by the Apostle Paul and he says, now Christ ascended on high above principalities and powers and he doesn't just receive gifts but he give, gives gifts. And uh, here we say a, a, a similar thing that Paul, Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.33 where Peter says, having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, 
he has poured out what you see and hear. Jesus ascending on high, coming to the Father, receiving from the Father the promised Spirit has poured out. And Peter says, this is what you can see. This is proof and demonstration that Jesus of Nazareth is not hidden in some tomb somewhere. You needn't search anymore for the body. This outpouring of glory is demonstration and proof that he is at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has received from the Father what you see and hear. And they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They had crucified the Lord of glory. And here was tangible proof, Holy Spirit activity, not only coming upon the waiting church, but convicting the hearts of the sinners all around them. So the Spirit was there proving the wonderful ascension of the outpouring, uh, the ascension outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, the rabbis... Uh, had taught that this was like Moses going up uh, the mountain to receive the law and giving it to Israel. But of course now in the new covenant, uh, Jesus is pouring out the Spirit into our hearts. So the law gets written in our hearts in this wonderful new covenant. Now this is uh, also something that would be seen in their contemporary generation, as John Stott says, after every conquest in the ancient world, there was invariably a receiving of tribute and distributing of largesse. What conquerors took from their captives, they gave to the people. And so in the Roman culture, this was not unknown at all for warriors and captains and kings to return home, distributing some of their triumphant signs of victory. And so Paul is somewhat uh, capturing that imagery as well. And Lincoln says, as you'll see in your notes I've just given this quote of his. This underlines the point the writer has already made in chapter 1, 22 and 23. God gives Christ as head over all to the church and it becomes his instrument in carrying out his purposes for the cosmos. Now, the one who has been given to the church as cosmic Lord himself gives to the church to equip it fully for its cosmic task. And to assert that the ministers are gifts of the exalted Christ rather than merely officers created by the church is clearly meant to enhance their significance in the eyes of the readers. We're talking about gifts of the ascended Christ. We're not talking about people taking position in church life merely through uh, training. We don't despise training. But we're not saying you can arrive in these roles in the church of God simply by training, simply by uh, uh, tuning up your intellect, or by being elected by a group of people who push you forward. Old Testament history shows God chooses whom he will to lead his people. And he selects, sometimes strangely, sometimes in contrast to what would be expected in the very context. A David who's not even on the end of the line of seven. He's the one God's got his eye on. The one unexpected. Amos, who is told, hey, go away and prophesy somewhere else. He says, listen, I'm not a professional. I'm not one of your prophets. I'm, I'm a farmer. God got hold of me. And that is the whole of the scripture. God gets hold of men and women and breathes life and revelation into them so that because of their relationship with him and his prior moving in their lives, they become spokesmen to the body of Christ. They become the channel of grace 
And their gift gives them their sphere of operation. This is not a man-made deal. Jesus has been given this position of highest glory to fill the earth. And Jesus, our ascended Christ, he gives gifts. And here Lincoln is wanted to underline, this is not simply officers created by the church. We can't make people leaders. We can observe, we can note the grace of God on people, we can see the favor, the anointing, and we make space. And a church that makes space for the gifting of God honors God. And knows God's ongoing favor and release. Our privilege is to note, to observe where gifts are, as I hope we'll go on to see during the study this morning. Paul just uh, puts in brackets, a strange verse really in some ways. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except he also descended? Well, here there are, if you look at the commentaries, three different alternatives that different people come up with. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. It's not the heart of what we're looking at. I personally would embrace the third that I put in your notes, a descent, not the first one, a descent into Hades. Some people would say that. Some would say it's the descent of the Spirit, the coming of Pentecost. I think the descent of the incarnation, in other words, Jesus took on human form. The New English Bible actually translates it to the lowest level down to the very earth. He came down to this earth. And if you compare that with other verses, such as no man has ascended to heaven except him who came down from heaven even the Son of Man who is in heaven. John 3.13. John 8.23, you're from beneath, I am from above. So this verse, verse 9, Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, what we're dealing with is nothing but a graphic and pictorial manner of describing our Lord's coming down to earth. Now probably, if you want to look into that more, and if you have fondly held other stances on that, I think probably in all the research I've done in recent days, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary opens that up more than any other and argues, I think, convincingly for that interpretation, okay? And then, he gave gifts. The gifts, in verse 11, are diverse. Lincoln says, what does the exalted Christ give to the church? He gives people. These particular people who proclaim the word and lead. In relation to verses 7 and 8, he gives not just grace to people, he gives specific people to people. And Gordon Fee says, instead of listing what that grace has been given to each of us, he lists some of the gifted people who are themselves gifts to the church. These ministries empower the whole body to carry out its ministry of building up the body to maturity, soundness, unity, drawing its life flow from its one head, Christ Jesus. Now, in saying that, we're saying these gifts are very important. The ascended Christ has given these diverse gifts and ministries with a goal in view. He is looking for a glorious church. He's looking for a mature body, a body that will come to the fullness of the stature of Christ, to a mature man. God is looking for a glorious church. And we're to more and more be captivated with a view of the church that fills our heart with joy and aspiration for the glory of Christ. And I want to always urge you to have a high view of the church of God. I don't want us to submit ourselves to the excessive individualism that plagues particularly the Western society and just interpret everything just for me, just for me. 
What is God saying to me? Of course we want a personal walk with him, but we do want to see God wants a glorious church. And it's a longing in my heart to see excellent servants of God being a context where they can reach the pinnacle of their potential because they're in a context of church life that releases them. And very often I see men who I greatly esteem and honour and I think if only they could be moved into a situation where they could flourish. One respects the individual, respects great teachers, but you think, oh, if only there was such a view of the church, seeing what God is after. And so many commentators seem not to be preoccupied with the church. One who would be regarded as a leading theologian in this country a little while ago said to me, oh, he's made a decision. He said, it's because based on ecclesiology. As though it doesn't matter. That's not important. The doctrine of the church, I mean, that's, that's life. Let's go on with life. I want it to be your passion and mine that we see a glorious church. For him, a bride for him, coming out from the rubble, coming out from the shambles and the mess and the mixture, a church that really looks like what the Bible says she is to be. And we're to move on to attain to this. Don't be misled. God is not given up on the church. God does not say, oh, they can't do it. I'll just take them one by one. I listen, he'll take us in one by one, but he will bring us to himself a body. It's so important for us to keep that passion constantly before us. And as we mentioned yesterday, nearly all New Testament ethics have to do with relationships in the body. Of course we're to love the outsider, the care for people, share kindness with the poor, the needy, etc. But so many of the calls to live godly are what we do in this wonderful body he is building. And so we need to see that. The universal church, and local churches in particular, have suffered throughout the centuries by our failure to see the diversity of the gifts mentioned. This is just a fact of history. Prior to the Reformation, each parish church had its priest. There was the laity, there was the clergy. There was the priest, there was the people. He was a kind of mediator. He was the one who knew God. The people were kept away. It was like, I need to come to the man to come to God. The Reformation, theologically, brushed that aside. Now we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Now we all have access. We understand what Jesus, our great high priest, has accomplished for us. We turn our back then on those doctrines that make the priest the mediator, but in practical terms, in church life, so often, the pastor has replaced the priest and passivity reigns. And this is the professional. He will lead our meeting. He will do this. He will do that. And we are often gathered to a guide who does it very well. Instead of seeing what we're going to see in these next couple of days, this morning and tomorrow, that the goal is to raise up a body. And so we're not looking for one man and people. We're not looking for one gift. And so we've got to come to these passages with real serious application. And we need to see there are four or five, whichever way you interpret it, ministries here that all have distinctive and different roles. Without them, we miss what was in the mind and heart of God. When Jesus ascended on high, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, and we only work with pastor, teachers, what are we missing of God's purpose for the church? What is being held back? I want to get into that and look at that carefully. So we're looking 
first of all at apostles and I want to say quite simply the inadequacy of the traditional evangelical view I want to submit this to you I want you to ponder this I want us to take seriously God's desire for the church and we find that many evangelical, evangelical teachers have supposed that some of the ministries listed in Ephesians 4 were temporary and only existed in the early church while others were permanent that is common knowledge Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who is a great hero of mine, said this In the first group, the extraordinary and temporary We have apostles, prophets and evangelists And in the second, the permanent group, we have pastors and teachers And that's what that great Bible teacher taught And it's what many Bible teachers would teach Some might arbitrarily, I would say, put the, the point somewhere else Actually, you're allowed to be an apostle or a prophet after you've died, I've noticed. I've noticed that the great Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I've seen it in print, since he died, he was called an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, and a pastor teacher. That great apostolic figure I've seen in print. He would never have been allowed to say that while he was alive. Probably wasn't actually an apostle anyway. But somehow, when you're dead, you can throw these names at people. But while you're alive, you mustn't use them. But what is it? say, the doctor, Dr. Lloyd-Jones saying, even the evangelist it's just the pastor teacher that is in the church today, now that is an extraordinary way of looking at the scripture, now obviously he argues his case, and I'm just taking the quote, but nevertheless it is a factual quote, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones argues that apostles must have, one, seen the risen Lord, two, been called and commissioned to do his work by the risen Lord himself in person must have been given a supernatural revelation of the truth, must have been given power to speak not only with authority but with infallibility, and must have power to work miracles. Now he argues that case, and many, to one degree or another, will take a similar stance. We could go through loads of different people's quotes on that, but you'll find a similar kind of approach. Now, it is also observable that as you go on to look at this kind of stance, you will find that the application shows you something. That where they are going is this. They are saying the scripture is complete. That is their immediate application, always. They're saying, listen, we have an authoritative canon of scripture. We have the writings of the apostles. We have our Old Testament, our New Testament. It is complete. It is complete. And so very quickly, they move on, not talking about mission, not talking about the pragmatics of church planting and evangelizing the world. They come quickly, and it's certainly true of the doctor, and it's true of others to say, so you can't add any more scripture because there are no more apostles. That's their burden. Their burden is to say, we have the doctrine. And so, obviously, the apostles have finished. And closely associated with that, you'll find in some of the writings, certainly they were the doctor, is withstanding Roman Catholic stance on apostolic succession and ex-cathedra statements of authority to establish doctrine in the church. That is his burden. That's where he's coming from. He is not coming from, how are we going to evangelize the Philippines? He's not coming from, how are we going to plant churches all over India? That is not his priority. 
His priority is, how can we defend the Bible? How can we make sure that our doctrine is safe and secure? There will be no more apostolic epistles, apostolic statements. And so he stops it there. That is the burden. I think that's an honest, faithful assessment of where many are coming from. It becomes apparent by how they apply what they say in their commentaries immediately afterwards. Especially some of the earlier uh, writers... Uh, that, you could, that often men like Lloyd-Jones dug into deeply into Reformation withstanding uh, the Catholic stance. And that has affected their approach. Instead of coming to a clean sheet and saying, now what does this say here? Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, they have got a preoccupation, a concern for the church. And were fighting big battles. They had a, a longing for a pure, clear church with pure, clear doctrine. And I believe that was the motivation for the approach. That was the context of debate. So in responding to this stance, we have to be careful in showing that we truly honour the fact that there are different kinds of apostles in the Bible. We see that Jesus is the apostle of our confession. Now, it's helpful just to remember there were different kinds of prophet in the Old Testament. We'll come back to that later. Some wrote scripture, some didn't. There were all kinds of different prophets. And so in the New Testament, you'll find categories, if you like, of apostle. There is Jesus, the apostle. There are the twelve. There are others beyond the twelve. I don't think I have to kind of spend a lot of time proving this uh, to you all this morning, but there are obviously the Apostle Paul, who arguably is a, in a category of his own, but in other ways, it's hard to just make him a category of his own, in that he's in the church in Antioch in Acts 13, and the Spirit of God says, Separate me for me, Barnabas and Saul, to the work for which I've called them. After which, in Acts 14, 14, for instance, they are simply called apostles, both of them, together. Now, we know Paul is incredibly unique in the New Testament. And so I'm very happy for people to argue, well, he has a category. But I think he still has to come in the general category of Ephesians 4 apostles. Though he argue, obviously can be argued for as special. But you get several special categories. What about James, the Lord's brother, who didn't believe in him? during his time on earth, those three years of ministry, but is clearly a leading apostolic figure in Jerusalem. And so we do have these other apostles that are clearly uh, designated in the church. And it says in Ephesians 4, apostles are not described as those who are witnesses of the resurrection necessarily, but rather it says this, he has ascended on high. And from his ascension, he gives gifts to men. It isn't that they were witnesses of his resurrection. Now, when they replaced Judas, you'll find that the apostles said, we must have someone who's been with us throughout and can be with us a witness to his resurrection. Yes, to replace Judas, to put, as it was, Matthias into that special twelve, that was an important factor. But it doesn't, uh, in Ephesians 4, imply that that's how it always has to be. 
and that that is the end of the story for apostles. Certainly again in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is writing to an ordinary local church, he talks about God has set in the church for apostles and prophets and evangelists. He seems to be talking about church life. He's talking about how the church goes on. He doesn't seem to be saying, now there were at the beginning, of course, just 12 guys. He's talking about how the church is going to grow. And here in Ephesians 4, he's talking about how the church will come to maturity. Leon Morris says, Apostle doesn't apply solely to the 12. Paul frequently claimed the title for himself, and sometimes in such a way as to show that he saw it as important. But if it is clear that it does not refer solely to the original 12, it is not clear exactly who could claim the title, nor how apostles were chosen. Now that's an honest Bible expositor. Barnabas is called an apostle, with Paul, Acts 14, 14. And reasoning from the we of 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, we probably should include Silvanus. Alright, so he's saying there were other apostles. That's just the way it was. Now, I want to keep on arguing this case because it's very important for us. See, other evangelical scholars, such as Thomas Schreiner, I've just, I just read a magnificent book of Thomas Schreiner's. I didn't know it was available in England until this morning. I, I, my son Ben got it for me for Christmas. I have so enjoyed reading this. Paul, Apostle of God's Glory in Christ. I recommend it to every pastor, all right? It is magnificent. I phoned the bookshop this morning. They're getting some down for tomorrow. It is a superb book. I have so enjoyed reading it. Just fellowshipping, as it were, with the Apostle Paul in his approach. But he says this, and I'll come back to him again later. He says, he argues for two categories of Apostle, some of which were authentic, 12 plus Paul, others he describes as missionaries. But of course the title missionary sheds no light whatsoever. So it's an, it's an all-encompassing word to describe modern overseas Christian workers. And so it's terribly unhelpful in that little section. <laughs> it's like a 500-page book, which is wonderful, but there's this little section that is unhelpful. Because he says, well, there are these guys, there were the 12 plus Paul, and then the others would have been missionaries. Now, every other passage in Scripture that he deals with through this great book, he carefully exegetes what the verse means, what it means, what it means, what it means. Now, he says, they're missionaries. You think, um, yeah? What's a missionary in biblical terms? You're trying to help me. You say, these were missionaries. Um, what's a missionary? You haven't told me what a missionary is. You're just giving it another word. It's rooted in the Latin, missio, to send, apostolo, to send, in Greek. You're not helping me by saying some were apostles, some were missionaries. What's a missionary? It doesn't help me to get to grips with what this passage is talking about. There are really, really challenges there, and I want to come back to that again in a minute. Often, the traditional view regards the church as a static institution. Not one given to dynamic, ongoing world mission. This is true. 
So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Thus the evangelist was a man whose office was temporary, and as the churches were established and became more settled, this office likewise disappeared. That's incredible. The churches were established, this office disappeared. As though, so we've got the church. What about China, India, South America? Do we do it different there then? Why do we do it different there to how it was done all around the Mediterranean? How churches were established by the early apostles, evangelists. Does it stop now? Because now they're settled, so this office disappeared. It's very hard to settle for that, really. Now, just to flatter the picture a bit more, I've put in our notes, there's a growing popular view. Peter Wagner has written a book, or two books actually, one called Churchquake and the other called The New Apostolic Churches. And he has, he's an observer of church growth. That is really his role and he's an interesting man. He can accumulate all kinds of uh, facts he's observed and put them together for people's interest and he's written two fascinating books. And he says this, The New Apostolic Reformation is an extraordinary work of God at the close of the 20th century which is, to a significant extent, changing the shape of Protestant Christianity around the world. In virtually every region of the world, these new apostolic churches constitute the fastest growing segment of Christianity. Now when he says apostolic churches, he's not talking about a denomination called apostolic. He's talking about networks of churches that relate to what he describes as apostolic ministry. But when you look more closely, I just read this other quote, he adds, this is the day of the most radical change in the way of doing church since the Protestant Reformation. Now he's looking at facts and figure. He's not looking academically, he's looking at what's happening around the world with thousands of people and thousands of churches. And he's observing that something is happening and that a lot of people would associate that with the recovery of believing in apostles. And so he is unafraid to use the word apostle. Now the problem is this, that it's beginning to be more and more popular to use the word apostle in some settings. You can get glossy magazines, particularly from the USA, and you'll find people who have the name apostle, the word apostle next to their name, and whereas that used not to happen even ten years ago, it's beginning to be quite a popular thing. But actually the word apostle, there is no effort to genuinely research what it means. And it begins to just be used for very successful. Or it might be, would like to be very successful. <laughs> but often what Peter Wagner is noting is very successful churches. So I've said in your notes here, in Church Quake, Peter Wagner highlights many distinctive features that he's noticed in churches that relate to apostolic ministry. But in his further book, The New Apostolic Churches, there seems to be little attempt to rediscover the biblical principles of apostolic ministry, but rather to take note of highly successful modern churches who have strong and gifted leaders and some influence beyond their own congregation. That's what he's highlighting. Some 
are in his account that are doing church planting and moving among the nations and it's certainly interesting and things you can read there are fascinating others are successful churches and some of them are churches led by people who don't even believe in spiritual gifts they're just very successful and others have copied some of the things they've done and so he's called that apostolic as well and so he's not really helping to shed light on us who want to be biblical if you hear what I'm saying, as John uh, Groves spelt out on our first night, we have a longing to be biblical. I don't want to be shut in by the academic who doesn't seem to be motivated by the mission field. And I don't want to be shut in by the guy who is just impressed by success and says, oh, well, let's call that apostolic then. It's really going. I want to say, what does it say? What does it mean for me today? As we say, Lord, take us to the ends of the earth. What have you done, Lord Jesus, in ascending on high and giving different gifts to men? I want to submit myself to truth without having to come through these channels. That is my concern. So the title apostle doesn't mean anything if it isn't what the grace that God has given to us. So let's just come back again. I'm trying to argue this very carefully. It's sometimes since we've looked at this in a thorough way and we're looking for the recovery of the church and we've seen all sorts of things blow through and we've been so helped by cells, we've been helped by Alpha, we thank God for so many things that have preoccupied us. We felt as a team too, it's time to restate our longing for the restoration of the whole church. And these issues are of crucial importance and I don't want us to think, oh yeah, we've got that down, but we haven't really. So and I want to encourage you to read books like Shriner's book because it's such a blessing to read it. But I want to say, but watch out for that church. <laughs> and I want to be stirred up by what Wagner sees because he's saying, just observing. He's just an observer. He says, wow, people who are trying this, it's really going. So that's saying something. It's worth hearing what he's saying. But I want us to say, what does it actually teach in the Word? And so, first of all, let's see, the twelve were unique undeniably unique. They constituted the foundations of the universal church. Revelation 21.14 sees them as the twelve apostles of the Lamb. They are put alongside in the previous verse, or at least uh, Revelation 21.12, the twelve sons of Israel. And certainly Jesus appointing twelve is not coincidental. It is plainly not coincidental. Jesus came inviting Israel to a new way of being Israel. He came as the promised Messiah. He came to a backslidden Israel. And he said to the disciples, don't go to anyone except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was only occasionally that he allowed a Gentile to tug through. This was the bread for the children. They could get through to him if they persisted, but his preoccupation was coming to Israel and offering them a new way of being Israel. No longer depending on the blood of Abraham in their veins, but saying to them, listen, I am the true vine. In the Old Testament, Israel had been called the vine. They'd come out of Egypt and been planted a vine, and they produced what Isaiah called stinking fruit. And Jesus came and said, I am the true vine. Abide in me. Come to me that you might have life. He came offering himself. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. 
I am the very name. He came saying to them, you, you religious Nicodemus, you must be born again. You've got to come to me. There's a new way. God is sending his Messiah. His first invitation is to his people, Israel, saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And some came to him. He was among them, offering them. He gave them opportunity to come to him and to be formed into a new people. And he went up into the mountain, which may, even as a phrase, be giving a little hint. As it says in Mark 3.14, he went up into the mountain and he drew to him those whom he desired and he appointed 12. Some of the commentators used to say he made 12. It's quite a distinctive word he used. He formed this foundation. He was gathering this new community in him, this new way of being Israel, in the Messiah, God's promise being fulfilled, the people who were in the Messiah, in Christ. And the twelve, yes, of course they are unique. They gave definition and identity to the newly defined people of God. On planet earth now, there's a newly defined people of God. They are the people who are in Christ, in the Messiah, in the one that heaven sent to be here for us. And when they preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, it says this, 3,000 were added. What were they added to? Well, they certainly weren't added to the temple anymore. That's coming down. They're not added to special uh, circumcision or to uh, Sabbath keeping or to special food and all those things that define this people before. This people before was defined by circumcision, food laws. It was defined by going up to the temple every time uh, there was a special feast. That's all going. What defines these people? Who are these people then? Who say, yes, I am added. Today I'm added. Added to what? What are you added to? This other thing's been brushed away by the Romans in AD 70. Scattered to the ends of the... What are we being added to? We are being added to this foundation, the apostles, those who have been with him for three years are added. The apostles were foundational. Absolutely. No question. I will build my church. Moses had already had his church in the wilderness. Now Jesus says, I'm building my church. And he laid it on the foundation of these unique twelve that he spent three years with, chose them to be with him, that they might have authority. Make you go out and preach. Cast out evil. So here, they undoubtedly were unique. They established and gave definition and identity to the newly defined people of God. It's a very important difference that we get hold of that. It's one of the most important apostolic emphases to say who are the people of God. What is God's plan? Because that's what they had to define. They were added to the apostles. That was what they did. And they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine day and night. That's who they were. They were a people being added to what the apostles said. This Christ whom you crucified, God has raised up. We're witnesses. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. We're accepted in him. Now, as Peter says, you're the holy people. You're a royal nation. You're priests. You are the people of God now. It's the apostles who communicated this reality. Now God has a people chosen out of every nation and tongue and tribe. We looked at this two years ago from Ephesians 2 and 3. We can't get into it more now, but it's very important we understand. Part of apostolic responsibility is to say, who is the people of God? 
and what are their privileges and responsibilities. And so the 12 were unique. They were added to this community. A new community was formed in Jerusalem that had never happened before. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I want to move on. See, that's how the original church started. If you like, the universal church was 3,000 people. That was the universal church. Now, that's not the first time, if you like, that had happened. Back in Elijah's day, God said to Elijah, there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee. Israel, in its history, had times when the, it became a very small community that was still loyal to God. Now this is 3,000. This is the universal church. Those filled with the Spirit. They built an apostolic foundation. But their commission was this, go and take the gospel to all the world. And so we see in what I've put B in our notes, the transition from the original Jerusalem base. You had to actually move on. You had to actually go and do it again now. And we find that Philip, the evangelist, got to Samaria before the apostles did. And we know the story. Philip inaugurated the evangelistic breakthrough. But Peter and John went down quickly to establish the place. The apostles went down. When they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. They went down. Apostles went down to establish this new committee. They didn't say, oh great, there's been an evangelistic breakthrough over there. They had to see, no, this has to be on the right foundation too. Actually, dynamically, a community had to be built properly. Had to be established correctly. And then you'll find there's further growth. When scattered believers go as far as Antioch, came to birth through people persecuted, fleeing from Jerusalem. And it says that the apostolic team, the base, the twelve in Jerusalem heard about this great breakthrough, many being converted. And so they sent Barnabas. Now, he's not yet an apostle, but it was out of apostolic burden. He's delegated to go. He's sent on their behalf. And as we know, he pulled in uh, Paul. But they were jealously concerned that this community being saved was built upon apostolic doctrine, an apostolic foundation. Then we find Paul's work. In Acts 13, Barnabas and Saul, having been in the church at Antioch, we find the Spirit says, set me apart, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. And they are called from then on apostles. And they go to do apostolic work. They go to bring the, the gospel to far-off nations, as we heard from Simon earlier in the conference that passion to go and name Jesus where he had not been named. And then I want to see this point, E. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul claimed that he had laid a foundation. This was an apostolic task. Now he's writing now to a pagan church far away from Jerusalem, years later, after the day of Pentecost, and he's saying... reflecting on what he did at Corinth, he said, I laid a foundation. That is something he did in time. It is a dynamic act. It's something he could quantify. He says, I laid a foundation. Can any man lay a foundation? What's he talking about? 
What's this apostle, this unique apostle Paul, this, this one that we can somehow put alongside the twelve because he's so special? And no one's wanting to argue particularly with that. He is so special. But he's saying, I don't want to build on another man's foundation. Well, what other man? Well, it doesn't tell him what, what other man. He doesn't say, well, I better go. No, no, it's another man's foundation. Another man can do that. It's something men did. They laid foundations. And so laying a foundation is a dynamic concept in a local church setting accomplished by another man. And Paul acknowledges the right of another man to lay a foundation. Presumably apostolic men who were doing that. Another place he says to the church at Corinth, you are the proof of my apostolic ministry. It's as if to say, well, if, to I'm, not, if I'm not an apostle to others, I am to you. You are the proof. What is the, what, how are they the proof? I believe we can honestly say they exist as a church. Their very existence as a church was proof of his apostolic ministry. So surely apostolic ministry does not have to be evaluated from the point of view of scripture writing. I want to get us right out of that as being the only way you can think about this. It's not just about those who wrote scripture. And certainly the thought that they have to be infallible. We don't need to argue that. We find that Paul uh, withstands Peter, who was clearly in the wrong, it says in Galatians 2.11 in the NIV. Clearly in the wrong. So Peter is not infallible. The Bible is quite happy to declare that. Also, we know about Paul and Barnabas having a strong contention, and the Bible doesn't even tell us who was right and who was wrong. And so we're not looking necessarily, even with the Twelve and with Paul, we're not looking for something that is kind of mystical and out of our desire to defend Scripture. No, let's be careful that we don't add something to Apostle that makes it out of reach and impossible. So that if you say apostle, as I once did a, at a conference in London, in Westminster, and someone, when I dared to say the word apostle, I was challenged, oh, you make yourself equal with the apostle Paul, do you? You think, well, how arrogant can you get? But my, daughter, my sister once told me before I was saved, she was going to heaven and she knew it. My first thought was, how arrogant can you get? She just believed the word wasn't arrogant at all. She received grace. And so we need to beware the danger of so lifting up this ministry is totally out of reach, out of sight, and out of touch. And the church loses what the ascended, church, ascended Christ has given. World mission was inaugurated by evangelism and church planting. Local church foundations have to be laid. It is the apostolic task to do this, whether the apostle gets there first or is in Acts 8 and 13, the apostles or apostolic delegate arrives later. See, the challenge is that we can write academic studies and then we talk about the church and then we say, well, missionaries can go and do this, but we're not saying, well, what does it mean missionaries can do Go and do what? Unless we give full weight to the role of these various ministries. 
Well, the word missionary obscures rather than clarifies, since it doesn't honor biblical definitions and categories. A modern missionary may be, this is actual fact, an agricultural worker, a nurse, a school teacher, a Bible translator, a literary, a literature distributor. All very worthwhile and wonderful ministries. I'm not knocking any of them. But that's what you call a missionary. So to say they were missionaries doesn't help me. It confuses the issue. Some of them may very well be evangelists or apostles. We need to get a biblical definition. It is vital that these categories are clarified for the sake of world mission. It's not merely an academic matter. We're called to world evangelism. This morning we're doing verse-by-verse exposition of Ephesians 4. Last night we spent the whole evening praying for nation after nation after nation, sending people, going. We've got to get together world mission and biblical reality. It's so important that we face up to it. And because we haven't put this together, so much missionary work doesn't church plant. So church planting has not been seen as at the centre of world mission, which it was in the Bible, because we don't see missionaries as apostles, and we haven't acknowledged the reality of apostles and church planting. And then added to that, we have interdenominational missions, so you can't plant one particular denomination because some of the givers from back here will be offended if you plant one of those churches in China. So we go out and do mission, whatever mission is. I'm overplaying it a bit, but it's true. Thank you. It's it's so important, dear friends, if we care about world mission. And with the modern preoccupation that as we go as from one nation to another nation, we don't go to tell people what to do, we go to serve the locals, which is fair enough, and honouring, we want to honour locals. But if you go in and deny you have a gift, you go to do what? Serve the locals. What are the locals? Well, they don't know what they are yet. Necessarily. So this just adds to the confusion. And so we do missionary work. We do some schools and hospitals and which is wonderful, mercy ministry. I'm not knocking it. I'm not knocking mercy ministry. I think the price paid by people we call missionaries absolutely affects me. I love reading missionary books. They've had as a profound effect on my life as anything I've read, and I love to get hold of them. I'm just going to reread Hudson Taylor again. I so love these people. But if we don't rediscover and re-give ourselves to church planting, we will not do the work of mission. Because that's how they did it in the Bible. And so we must get to grips with this. Not so that we just clearly answer Ephesians 4, but so that we can do the job. It is vital that these categories are fulfilled. Let me read you a Shriner quote, which I just looked at this morning. Very interesting quote at the beginning of his book, where he says, Perhaps... The missionary focus of the Pauline writings is not attractive because most scholars, he writes as a scholar, most scholars are not missionaries. We tend to seize on themes that interest us, and most scholars are not inclined to missions. Paul, on the other hand, was first and foremost a missionary. Now he means, (laughs) don't look too closely at the word missionary, but what he's saying there is the guy is motivated to go. 
But, but most theologians are not coming from there. They're trying to defend the Bible. So we're on a mission. If you, when you leave this meeting, you'll find someone will offer you, if you'd like to take it, a magazine called Mission Matters, or Mission Matters, whichever way you want to emphasize it. It's a good title. And there's all the names of, what well, many of the famous missionary societies. You will find New Frontiers International is now in here. Because we are on a mission. Right? And now that would confuse you even more. But we're in here, and we're on a mission. And when you look at the various categories that you can serve God in missionary societies, you'll find teaching, you'll find caring, working, all sorts of uh, uh, development, education, engineering, medical, social action, support ministries, other. All these various categories, you'll find that we can get in every column. Because we're doing all that. But we're going first to plant churches. absolutely essential and so dear brothers and sisters if you've got young people in your church and they say I think perhaps I want to go to the mission field where that is Wendy was raised in a family that was very mission minded and as a little girl she wondered where the mission field was is it behind that other field by the park But we do, we get young people that say, I want to go. But listen, let's go consistent with what we believe at home and do it over there. Let's build church. And the sort of churches that Paul built in Thessalonians where he says, I don't have to come into your area anymore because from you, local church that I planted, sounds out the gospel all around your region. There's no room for me, I'm going on. That kind of church. Not dead docile, maintenance, boring, ashamed of church. <laughs> but exciting, mobile, outward looking, church planting, cell multiplying church. We've got to get to grips then and argue this through because we don't want to say, oh let's just call ourselves this then in the way that I feel Peter Wagner suggests. I want to be more careful than that. I want to be more biblical than that. I want to look at where are these grace gifts? I don't want to see, Lord, I want to ask you, Lord of the harvest, great giver of gifts, you ascend on high, please give us some more. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, because we don't want the priests and the people, even if you call it pastor and people. We want a church that has the full benefit of the wind of prophetic, the wind of the apostolic, the evangelistic, etc. We must go for this with all our might. I've spent a long time on that passage. It's important we get hold of it. Let's just press on. Prophets. We haven't a lot of time, but we will work through it. Prophets. God's people have always been prophetic. Abraham, the first man God called, is called a prophet. What does it mean? He had revolution, a revelation supernaturally. God spoke to him. God made himself known to him. He interrupted his pagan life with revelation. He began to communicate with him. He began to fellowship with him as a friend. He called him a prophet. Also we find that Moses is called a prophet and Hosea is careful to underline by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. By a prophet, he was kept. Hosea 12, 13. 
they were sustained by revelation that came supernaturally. A person in Moses who related to God, who saw things from God, who led them by revelation. Now in the Old Testament, there are different kinds of prophets. They're not all of Moses' stature. They're not all of Abraham's stature. In fact, it's interesting there are prophets of immediate significance, like Elijah, Elisha. They never wrote Bible, canonical books. They just prophesied into their day and generation. Micaiah, just a prophet. We just know his name. He was sent for. And he says, this is going to happen. He just has revelation from God. Then you have prophets of long-term insight. I've said, Daniel, a guy who can say, and this will happen, and this will happen, and this will be locked up and opened another generation. It's all to be written down. And this is a different kind of... But he's called a prophet. Same word is used. You'll find that Ezekiel has these mysterious visions, vast panoramas. You think, what on earth does it all mean? I saw something like this and something like that. And I saw visions of God. Phenomenal. And then you have a man like Nathan who says to David, you're the man. You adulterer. So one guy saying, oh, this is about times to come. Another man just says, I'm in your face. You're an adulterer. How did you know? I know. The gift is the prophetic. Whether it is knowing the future or whether it is knowing your heart, the Bible is pleased to call it prophetic. They were prophets of different kinds of categories. There's diversity. They're all called prophets. What they have in common is a revelatory and immediate aspect of the insights and words in contrast to the teacher. Ezra, for instance. Ezra, who studied the law of the Lord and obeyed it, he's a good teacher, and then he taught it. He looked at what was already revealed. Now, so did others. Daniel saw from the writings of Jeremiah, and so often these prophets were drawing from one another. We're not saying they only got stuff straight out of heaven. They're receiving from God. They're also deep in previous revelation. But Ezra, the teacher, is teaching what it says, meticulously, line on line, explaining it. The prophet then was a guy who got it by revelation. Now the New Testament, rooted as it is in the Old Testament, builds on its background without further definition. We should benefit from those who receive revelation. As in the New Testament, where Agabus is seen to function in similar fashion to the Old Testament prophets. If you look at Agabus, he looks like one of these Old Testament prophets. It just looks the same as some of the men in the Old Testament. You also find Judas and Silas, who strengthened the brothers, we're told. It says they were prophets. And they strengthened the brothers. And I noticed in this very helpful, I want to mention again, English Standard Version, the Bible of the future. All right? I will be using it very soon. How helpful, helpful. It says this. They strengthened the brothers with many words. Interesting. The NASB, which I have previously favoured, as you might understand from the next phrase, (laughs) the sharp ones ahead of me. Not with lengthy messages, all right? I've always liked the NASB. (laughs) But not only for that phrase, that preachers are free to have lengthy messages. 
but actually the Greek is just polologu. I think it's many words. And who knows? I was speaking to one of our guys recently. He was in Canada. He ministered and so on. He said it was a prophetic guy there. He gave us such amazing words. That's the phrase he actually used. So he read our mail. You've heard that kind of thing. He said it was so encouraging. Now, perhaps that's what it means. I'm not wanting to be dogmatic about that. But it says, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, strengthened the brothers with many words. Now, it could be that it doesn't mean, as the NESB has taken slight liberty with translating it, lengthy messages. This one will stop fairly soon. Now, we do need to see the difference, and we haven't time to get into all of this, between prophesying and prophets. Agabus, we're told, in Acts 21, 4, well, we're told that Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Again, sadly, the NASB takes liberties and says four daughters who were prophetesses, which is an interpretation, not a translation. It's not what it says. It says there were four daughters who prophesied. It's a verb, not a noun. They're not prophetesses. It's not called that at all. They prophesied. Then it says... Agabus, the prophet, who was a prophet, he came into the house and he took uh, a belt, put it round Paul and said, this will happen. He was a prophet, a recognized prophet in the body of Christ. These girls prophesied. In the Bible, we can aspire to prophesy. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. When you pray, or prophesy. Prophesying was a normal part of the prophetic community of the church. But there were also some prophets. That was their calling, their gift. They served the churches like Agabus, like Judas, like Silas. We need to be praying, Lord, please give us more apostles, people who are gifted by God to do apostolic work. Lord, please give us more prophets gifted by God to do prophetic work. We need these diverse gifts. Evangelists. Apart from here, that is in Ephesians 4, the word only occurs describing Philip in Acts 21.8 where it says, Philip who was an evangelist. It's the only other place that it's used. Apart from where Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. So we haven't got a great deal of material to work through to say, oh, this is what an evangelist is, this is how an evangelist works. And so it's impossible to be certain or dogmatic about their sphere or role. But surely, the modern idea of an evangelist who sets up a ministry and an organization apart from the church is assuming a lot, if we see the church as central. Now that isn't to, to knock someone like Billy Graham, who I esteem so highly and have huge respect for. Or any other evangelist come to that. And I know some dear and wonderful evangelists. I'm not trying to put anyone down. I'm just saying I believe the biblical form would have been the focal central place of the church. And that evangelism went out from the church and converts were added to the church. It would have been church-based. And in as much as these ministries seem to be itinerant and traveling, I could see evangelists working with a number of local churches. And as we'll see tomorrow, equipping saints for work of ministry as well as themselves reaping. Evangelists then, apostles, prophets, evangelists, doing the church good so that we together come to maturity. I like this quote from John Eadie's old commentary. It's rather old commentary, but he really puts his finger on something. In one sense, apostles and prophets were evangelists. 
for they all preach the same holy evangel. But this official title implies something special in their function, inasmuch as they are distinguished also from teachers. These gospelers, which is a good word, it's using the word uh, for the gospel, and the evangelists, which is in, very close together in Greek, these gospelers may have been auxiliaries of the apostles, not endowed as they were, but furnished with clear perceptions of saving truth, possessed of a wondrous power in recommending it to others, passing from place to place with a wondrous story of salvation and the cross, they pressed Christ on men's acceptance. Listen to this phrase, their hands being freed all the while from matters of detail in reference to organization, ritual and discipline. In other words, these gospelers, separated to gospel proclamation, kept free from other pastoral eldership duties. They were separated to be gospelers, he's suggesting. I like that. I think it's a helpful way of seeing the distinction between uh, uh, evangelists, some of whom um, we may find many doing the work of an evangelist. Many pastors may do a work of an evangelist, but some separated to develop their gift of evangelism and give themselves wholly to that gift. And then finally, the one we know most of all about, perhaps, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, pastors and teachers, there's much debate as to whether this constitutes one or two ministries. Each of the previous ministries is introduced by the definite article, which is repeated before pastors, but omitted before teachers. In other words, it says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, not some pastors and some teachers. So you can argue from the text these two are put together. You can also note, as John Stott does, it is clear that pastors, that is shepherds, who are called to tend God's flock, do so in particular by feeding it, by teaching. In other words, that is the way you shepherd the flock, you teach them. God said to Jeremiah, or at least Jeremiah said, I will give you shepherds who will feed my people with knowledge and understanding. Shepherds feed, pastors and teachers. I tend to think that it's one ministry. I don't think I would uh, want to be shot for it or give my life for it. I don't see it as that important. And I think some people tend to have a loving pastoral gift, but I don't want to somehow reduce pastoring to very good at drinking cups of tea. And, you know, that's the pastor. He's good at tea drinking and cosy chats. Whereas the teacher, he's kind of in the Bible and doesn't like people much. <laughs> That's a slight caricature. <laughs> you sometimes hear, not quite so wickedly caricatured, but you hear it a bit like, well, he's sort of more with the people and he's more in the books. Well, I don't know that I'm comfortable with that. I think pastors and teachers myself. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we'll go into that tomorrow. Whether we regard these as four or five gifts, it's of great importance that each of them is operating in church life. And we are not guilty of maintaining mere institutionalism. And John Stott, let it be trumpeted out at this particular season in his denomination, the New Testament never contemplates the grotesque situation in which the church commissions and authorizes people to exercise a ministry for which they lack both the divine call and 
the divine equipment. If we take seriously the word of God, if we know that the church is the only answer, not only to England, which is falling apart at such a rate of knots that it's so heartbreaking and scary, but the many nations, we know the church is the answer. We can't play fast and loose with the church. At a time when all kinds of speculative thought comes on our radios, our televisions, and people tell us what church is, and then sometimes unbelieving people are in high position and have a name as church leader and don't believe the Bible or don't take seriously the writing of these holy apostles and prophets, and yet our leaders. Beloved, we've got to take this Bible more seriously than that. We've got to take church more seriously than that. We can't be so selective. We've got to say, Lord, I long for your church. Let us plant a thousand churches in this country. If it takes a thousand churches to wake a nation up. It happened in Wesley's day. Let's believe God to do it all over the world. The church, the church. And it will only come according to this passage when we rediscover and release apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Knowing this, that they are not down to our appointment. We can't say, right, we need some more of these. You, 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 you'll do. Yes, you're nice. Uh, we've got to say, Lord, you're the one who gives. How do you know a guy's an evangelist? That seems somehow easy. People say, oh, he's an evangelist. People get saved. There are ways of discerning gifts. How do you know he's a pastor? It is discernible. How do you know he's apostolic? Well, Leon Morris says, we don't know precisely how they did it. Thank God for that honest comment. We don't know precisely how they did it, but they saw apostles and prophets. Let's open up the scripture. Let's open up the mission field. Let's open up the purposes of God. Amen. Let's just pray that God will go with us. Let me just mention this magazine, which will be at the doors as you leave if you'd like to take one. I do encourage you to take them and uh, uh, be interested in God's world. Father, thank you so much for your provision in sending us your wonderful son, the Apostle of our confession, your unique one. I send you as a covenant. And Lord Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful that you came and you have been building your church. Lord Jesus, we ask you, please lead us into truth and give us passionate longings for a glorious church. Help us, Lord, in town after town to have a testimony like Paul. I have laid a foundation. Lord, help us to do it. Help us to build godly communities that live together in love and purity, gentleness and meekness, that glorify your great name. Please go with us. Let your word penetrate our hearts and lives to your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.